everybody, welcome back to the Creative Gap Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with somebody who has been a major pioneer in the world of modern directing and storytelling. He has a vast array of work ranging from high-end commercials, innovative music videos, to very intimate human-centric stories. When you see his work, you know it's his. Not only is he a renowned filmmaker, but he's also an extremely talented musician, music producer, and audio engineer. He's a father and husband, originally from South Africa, but currently living in New York. I'm very excited to bring on today's guest. But before we do that, let's give a quick thank you to today's sponsor. Musicbed is one of the only brands that I truly trust with my filmmaking projects and my podcast. What you're listening to in the background is also from Musicbed. When designing the intro and outro to my podcast, it was really important to find the right song that fit the aesthetic, vibe, and emotion that I wanted to convey for my podcast. Not only does Musicbed provide a great selection of music, it also helps with storytelling. Musicbed has the largest roster of independent artists and is curated just for filmmakers and creatives. So take your projects and films to the next level with Musicbed. Hear the difference for yourself and sign up for a free account. Use code CARLO at checkout to receive one month free when you purchase an annual subscription. Thank you, Musicbed. Let's welcome Solomon Lethelum. Welcome back. <laughs> Part two. Part two, man. Yeah. 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 Um, so it. I have what I told you before, I was kind of wrestling with the idea of mentioning the fact that we did record another one before this and some technical issues came up and we're doing it again, Mm -hmm. Um, which was really hard for me. This, because, you know, booking this place, getting all the people here, getting you here, spending two and a half hours during that interview was, it meant a lot to me. And I really thought that that interview was like really, uh, really fruitful. I I loved it. Um, So for the next like couple weeks, I kept beating myself up over and over and over again. And I recall one thing you said in that podcast about you going down this like spiral, or right. I forget what you called it, but what mm-hmm. you talked about, but I recognized it when I was doing it. I was just like, I'm just digging myself into a right. deeper and deeper hole. Right. And something I realized was, I feel as though I'm pretty good at forgiving people, but I suck at forgiving myself on right. mistakes. Right. Um, is that something that you also notice maybe within yourself is how do you, how do you deal with failure in like moments and forgiveness of yourself? Um, I feel like I've, I feel like I've learned to become perhaps a little bit better at it. Um, just cause I've, I've been, there's like two or three moments in my life that I've sort of hit these moments of, I wouldn't even say failure. Um, but perhaps a subjective rock bottom. Right. Um, and I, and the one time I sort of was, had a hard time getting out of it. Um, and I sort of had like a, a spiritual moment, a spiritual encounter, I would say, um, at sort of the depths of that time during that time. Um, and the thing that I learned during that time is that the that on the way to the bottom the way you sort of get yourself from the bottom sometimes something can just trip you up um, but it's not the thing that really like takes you out mm. it just trips you up right but the thing that really the thing that trips you up but then then that that thing can then take you to the bottom is are the lies we tell each ourselves um and those lies 
are often um, almost validated by the trip. Mm. Um, it, it, the lies lie in the trip because right. maybe you said something and now someone said something or you you did something. I, I, I wanna use a, a personal example. I did a, two music videos, three music videos during a time um, that felt like, oh, these are gonna sort of change my career. Another lie, I think as well, mm. to even think that way. Um, but I sort of sacrificed so much of my personal well-being, my family relationship at the altar of these three music videos. I realized I wasn't talking to my mom as much. I wasn't even communing with my family, my kids and my wife as much. They were all super supportive and didn't say anything, but I even realized within myself sort of my relationship to them mm. and sort of my inner self was atrophying. And, um, and I was like, oh, it's fine. It's like, yeah. I, I couldn't even really see that at the time. I just realized, oh, you know, these were, these were almost like subconscious sacrifices that I was willing to make um, just because, man, this thing that I was gonna do for this artist, right. if that thing comes out and it's awesome, then that could be the change in my yeah. career. And anyway, so internally I was sort of um, atrophying and then two of those music videos went south and so that was the trip. That was like the one trip. Um, the one artist didn't want the one music video to come out. Um, and actually didn't, not the artist actually, it wasn't the artist, it was the, the management, not the label, the management. And they didn't write the nicest things. Um, about the video? About me. Oh, um, like you as a director or as a person? I, like, I'll, I'll just, I'll just sort of, give the sort of the, the context. Sure. It was a film that didn't have a lot of money and I put in, I think they had something like 10 grand. And we put in, a, I put in an additional yeah. 30 grand wow. and to make it happen to shoot on film. And it was sort of a politically sensitive music video. Um, and um, the label, the label sort of, I would say gave me free reign. They were just, or not the label, the management, they were just there to sort of like, see the artist, um, record when I was shooting the artist, make sure that the artist was captured well. Um, and then um, and then sort of left into my own, de own devices. But because the nature of the content of the scenes that I was capturing sort of around the performance, very real raw scenes, um, because they were sensitive, a lot of the cast um, felt like they they didn't want certain things um, I had to change things um, to be sensitive to just the way that certain scenes were um, portrayed. Portrayed, and yeah. uh, you know, it was something that I was like, I definitely want to do that, but the label or the management wasn't there for those. So when they finally saw the film, in some areas it was sort of like different to what mm. they saw. Perhaps all beside the point. I guess the point was just that there was sort of a personal attack, and I started believing that that thing that was said about me, even though I feel like initially it was such an affront to me that like, oh, how can you say that? Mm. You start thinking, oh, is that who I am? And um, I have also realized I have no, uh, I hate even saying that I almost like hate the fact that I even told this story because it really is no bad blood um, sure, to sure. the management. I've realized even, 
within myself, that sort of is a cancer yeah. um, that can really erode my own soul. Um, but the fact that I sort of took those words and I started believing them and I started saying those things sort of about myself and even, even the fact that, because there were two narratives, one, is that true about me? And then the other narrative is, uh, oh, I feel like such a victim. So. Oh, poor right, me, right. like why is that happening to me? These are, again, things I wouldn't dare say, but sometimes you think that, <laughs> that's even cancerous. Like mm. that was a cancer to my own soul, but, and that, that caused me to spiral. And it was sort of a word by my mom in sort of three months of this, where I was like going to sleep at 7 p.m. at night and waking up at 10 a.m., you know, like I just wanna sleep. You just wanna sort of sleep time away. Mm. Um, and so a burnout, perhaps, a depression, perhaps. Uh, again, a subject of rock bottom, whatever you call that. I think for everyone, rock bottom looks different. For some people, yeah. they get strung out. For other people, you wouldn't even know. Mm -hmm. And they're carrying it so personally. But I guess it's just being at, sort of at the end of yourself. Um, and I started, I went through two of those. I went through one. And then the other one was sort of on the way. I was mm. heading there and I realized- While you were experiencing the first one already? No, no, no. So two, two years separate. after. Okay. One was in 2018 and the one was in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, both related to work. Both grinding really hard, atrophying the sort of the inner man because I'm just going, going, going. Relationally, spiritually, in all ways, I'm sort of atrophying the inner man. Mm. Um, and, and then something trips you up. And then the first one, something tripped me up and I believed the lie and I sort of spiraled. And then the second one, it tripped me up, but I recognized that I'd been here before and I'm not gonna allow it to trip me up. Mm. And I'm gonna speak, I'm gonna believe the words of my mom, that you are beloved, that you are valuable, that you are worthy, which I think my mom, you know, from her mouth, that's words to a son. Sure. But I think also from her mouth, it's like, cosmically, even separate from me and my dad, me and your dad's imperfect love of you, you know that you are loved in a sort of cosmic way. And it was sort of a, you know, when that happened in 2018 for the first time, I was like, oh, that's it, that's, that's it. It restores my depleted right. value, it completely boom. And it's really hard to sort of describe that to people. It's really hard to describe any sort of, I guess, spiritual interaction without sounding, you know, f flaky or, um, uh, you know, hippie-like. But I guess when it really does, when you, have, when you have nothing left of your own worth and something comes and imparts value, yeah. not in an ego way, it's the opposite of ego. It's like the ego is the thing that broke and got fragile and it's the inner man was restored. Um, and it's the man that can love his family again, that can be present, that isn't self-pitying himself, um, that is, you know, a, an active help at home. Um, it's sort of really hard to describe that um, in any other way, I guess, than just like it was a spiritual encounter. And I've sort of learned from the first experience not to go, not to believe the lies that can trip you up or that can really debilitate you. Um, so I feel now I have the tools not to go down there. I don't think I'm immune to it. I don't think any human is immune to it. Um, but I think I have better tools and those tools really, I mean, I think 
so much of it is just reminding your mind, prayer and meditation, if I can put it as a spiritual practice um, of who I am, but also in light of who, I'll just put it in this way, who the other is, sure. you know? Um, I think what helped me also um, was the fact that my fiance recognized that I was in a bit of a dark place right. for a little bit. And she forced me to talk about it. Right. Cause you know, I would, you know, I, I didn't want to talk about much. I, I felt very just like in my own shell. And I think having a partner that can recognize that you are potentially, you know, you're not yourself. There's something mm -hmm. going on mm -hmm. that can force you to talk about it. Have you sit down, look at her and, express what is happening. And right. I think talking to her made me realize how stupid those thoughts that I was saying to myself actually were. Right. And um, I know that you also have a wife as well that has mm -hmm. helped you and, you know, guided you through a lot of your life as well. Mm -hmm. um, as a person that's grown as an artist, how has having a supportive partner helped you along your journey? I mean, very honestly, um, maybe the, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was working through this last night where I asked my wife for notes on a feature that I'm working on, uh, on the script. And, you know, we almost have to have like a truce mm. moment before that it's like, okay, I'm not gonna take this too personally. <laughs> and then invariably you're sort of shouting at each other. Like, That's not what I meant. Why do you take it so personally? Um, but I think, I mean, just brass taxes, she can call out um, she can call out my my shit. She mm. can call out my hypocrisy. She can be brutally honest with me, and it's really hard to hear. But actually, uh, actually, from her, I can hear it. I'm even trying to think whether that's actually a, a true statement because sometimes it's really hard to hear um, very honest things about yourself. You sure. know, um, I find it really difficult sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you're in like a potentially vulnerable state. Yeah. It's really, it's even harder. In your most vulnerable yeah. state. Yeah. Where, where you're wanting to be um, sort of padded and embraced as opposed to, you know, like sometimes that's sort of what's needed. I, it doesn't always work. The sort of like, you know, just pull your shit together. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that's, that's, always what happens, but sometimes that happens. I'll, I'll put it this way. Like when I was going through my first, th through that sort of the first journey, I guess, 2018, um, my wife was very patient to a point, and, but I still wasn't out of it. And it wasn't until I had this conversation with my mom. And for some reason, you know, I think one person can say the exact same thing but when you're seeing it through the prism of someone else, it lands differently. Mm. Um, some reason it sort of landed differently when my mom said it. Um, uh, but I think it just goes to the point that it's either gonna be, it's gonna be, be the people probably closest to you um, that's gonna be able to be very honest with you, call you out, um, cause my parents call me out if they see me not treat my wife fairly, for mm. instance, um, or if I've, you know, if I've neglected in the small ways, if I've, 
neglected um, remembering a Mother's Day or right. uh, the simple things. The, sim the, sim the yeah. simple things. The Those simple things overlooked. that mean a lot. Yeah. Um, my parents are <laughs> my parents are usually on the side of my wife. Hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a lot of there is a lot of I feel like truth and vulnerability in our household and mm. our family. Um, because I think sometimes it takes sort of a prism of voices to be able to sort of dig into you. Sometimes it's not just the one or it's not just the two, but it takes that right voice at that right time. Could be mom, could be dad, could be kid, your mm. kid, could be your wife, um, you know, that just hits, uh, that just then the truth sort of comes in, you know. I I find it fascinating because my parents also do side with my fiance often. Right. And I think her parents side with me often. Interesting. Yeah. Um, right. Which is really funny. But um, I, when you're going through, you know, certain things, there's always, you know, there's always ups and downs. There's never just, I feel it's never just like a flat road of yeah. just like sadness or depression. There's always moments of ups yeah, and yeah, downs. Yeah, definitely. Um, how do you, do you think that your, your journey as a director and I guess writer can only really be like your best work when you go through certain things in life? Like when you navigate the ups and downs in life and uh, do you think that some of your work is starting to get to the point where you feel really proud and fulfilled because of all the things that you've gone through to take you to where you are? I don't, e I don't even know if I feel proud and fulfilled yet. Mm. Um, and I don't know if I ever will be. I feel like there's sort of a an endless tap of curiosity that that I'll, sorry, that I'll try and sort of burrow into. You said something, I think I read it in an article, um, curiosity pushes you past your current success. Right. Something like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I even, I heard, I heard someone the other day say, I can't remember who was being interviewed. I guess I was, I, I don't know, I was maybe watching actors round table or directors round table and someone was saying, someone was asking the question, how do you, I'm trying to think of who it was, but it was a, I think it was a director whose first film was like a masterpiece. Oh, wow. And um, no, 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 sorry, it was an actor. The first, one of the first thing that he was involved with, um, it's the guy that played in American fiction. I can't remember his name right now, um, the actor. Um, but- I don't um, remember the first thing that he was sort of involved in blew open his career. And then the question from the other actors were, how do you, like, how do you top that? Right. You know, and I can't remember, remember the answer he's given, he, he gave, but I remember dealing sort of with that question, not like the first thing that I did was a success, but there was the idea of like, how do you top this thing that you've made? And I was like, well, I honestly think it's a fool's errand that, idea of even trying to top something that you've made. I think when I hear that, it feels like the marker there is success. 
is like the ambition that drives what you do next. This thing needs to be better than this thing. And it's like, it's, well, it's just not possible. It's like you have the wrong engine there that's sort of driving you. I, I feel mm -hmm. the people that really inspire me are the people who I feel like have a different engine. Like the thing, the, the kryptonite that's keeping them going is, um, is curiosity as opposed to drive for success or for um, like ambition. And so I can't remember who said it. Someone also said, um, you know, uh, follow, your follow, follow your curiosity and not your ambition. And I feel like that's such a great, um, just such a great yardstick to sort of live by creatively. Um, and I think if I look at David Lynch, Scorsese, um, uh, Malik yeah. will chase butterflies, you know, but finds the story in that. I, it, it strikes me that Malik doesn't give one iota of consideration for what he deems other people uh, would like or would, would make him successful. He's interested in sort of like cultivating this sort of the curious voice that's mm. inside him. Uh, and I think there's something deeply human, deeply spiritual about that. And I, when I grow older, that's, I want to live like that. Mm -hmm. I want to create from that same source, mm -hmm. you know. What keeps um, you curious? Like after so many years, what about this career? What about your life keeps you on the path of curiosity and wanting to find more or find something new? Um... I don't know. I think I, my wife and I actually have quite a bit of talk about this because I think perhaps even the thing that keeps me curious can be seen sort of maybe as like a gift on the outside. Sure. But that same thing that can be seen as a gift um, can also be really hard on family. So it can be, I don't want to say a curse, um, but can be just, it has an inverted, it has an inversion that's really tough on family. Um, so I don't know if my, my grandfather was very curious person, um, you know, um, uh, intellectually, my father too spiritual and, mm -hmm. um, and intellectually, intellectually sort of curious person. Um, I'm a very curious person, but I've also realized that one of my deepest fears is that I don't have enough knowledge. Mm. And so or time, th there's a relationship between time and knowledge for me. Sure. Like I feel like I don't have enough time to learn about the world. It makes me immensely curious. Like, well, I don't know. I don't want to say that about myself, but I just know that I love researching and I love um, you know, reading articles and I've got so many stories that I want to tell. And I think we spoke about this last time and it's also sort of dangerous in a TikTok social media driven world mm. where you have access, instant access to so many different things. It's so easily to, it's so easy to get distracted by the things that sort of pique my curiosity. And so I have so many outlines for short films and feature films, but I only have like two, three scripts written mm. because it's really hard for me to sort of go deeper. Um, 
And this all sort of stems from, I guess, like a deep fear that I don't have enough knowledge and that, that I won't have enough time in this in my life to sap all the knowledge that I can. Again, I'm not I'm not an intellectual or a, or a brainy person. That's yeah. just sort of me trying to. Um, I feel safe, I guess, by learning. Um, I guess, like deep down, that's a thing. I didn't even realize this about myself until my wife sort of like said, "Hey, like, um, I love that you're learning about the world, but." just be aware that sometimes you can sort of have blinders on yeah. and you'll be on your computer, just like going down this rabbit trail and that rabbit trail. And actually we just, it'd be, it'd be nice if you're home Present. helping right. us cook and, you know, like. Does that, does that internally, like, is there a weird like push and pull with that? Cause I always, I love working. It's like something I'm truly passionate about. And it doesn't feel like work to me. It's just something that I, I love doing. Right. But, you sometimes have to let that go to be present with your family. And I feel like that could be tough sometimes. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, immensely tough, especially when your work is what you love to do. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Um, do you think yeah. having kids has helped you stay present more? Do you think it's been harder? I think, I think kids have helped me to be more present at the same time have reminded me of how absolutely not present and <laughs> selfish my natural disposition is. Mm. Um, again, I don't know if, I mean, if these are all things we learn about ourselves. Like when we're alone yeah. without a partner, you think all's fine and you're gonna be very giving um, as a partner. And then you learn how selfish you are. Um, and then when you have kids, it just, I mean, that it learning becomes yeah, yeah. much more amplified. Um, and, but that's a good thing, I think. I mean, it's a- Are kids like a mirror to you, do you think? Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. certainly in some ways, I think you see, you see a lot of yourself in your kids. Um, and you also, I mean, the, the thing that I realized when I was a kid is, well, the question that I was asking is what did I inherit from my parents that traits, was good? The traits? Yeah, or ways to raise kids. Ways, okay. Um, uh, ways to, yeah, what, I guess it's just like ways to raise kids that become both what is, good for their physical well-being, what's good for their emotional well-being and what is good for their spiritual well-being. Mm. So what what have I inherited from my parents that I can go, wow. Cuz there are things when as a kid when I look at the way that I was raised, I was like I would never want to raise my kids that way. I would never I would never speak to my son like that or I would always listen and respond immediately when they speak to me. Mm. And then you become a dad and you're like, oh, I've got the same predispositions that my dad had or that my mom had. Certainly that my dad, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot like my dad. Mm. Um, and it's not as easy as just, oh, well, I'm gonna not be like that. I've inherited some of that, sure. you know? So some of it sort of gets passed down just through osmosis mm. or through genetics. Um, and then some of it is, ways of t 
teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have and, to balance how your wife was also raised as yeah, well in her exactly. style or how what she was brought the down families, with. Yeah. Her family's dynamic. Yeah, definitely that. Um, and so, yeah, it's trying to chew the meat and spit out the bones. Mm. And before I had kids, I thought I was going to uh, spit out a lot of bones. I kept it. I kept a lot of it. I've realized that a lot of what my parents did for me are super useful. And even though I sort of fought against it a little bit um, back fought then. Ag- fought against it when you were first having kids or fought against it when you were a kid? Fought against it when I was a kid. Mm. And even before, just before I had kids, I was like, well, I'll, this is how I then would want to raise my kids. It's like, actually, I took on a lot of the way that I was raised. That's how I'm raising my kids, you know? Um, uh, Something that I've talked to with parents and like people that I work with that are dads and mothers is the idea of like forced adversity. And -hmm. I find this to be like a really interesting topic and something that I, I mean, I don't have kids, but one day I, I hope to is you, you see a lot of successful people and a lot of the reason is because they went through a lot of adversity in their childhood. And as a parent, you always want to give your kid better than what you have, a better life than what you had. But there always comes with that back and forth of, well, I don't want to give them too much because part of who I am is because of that adversity, the, uh, some of the hardships. So like as a parent, how do you even balance the fact of uh, this, my child needs to go through hardships and needs to go through adversity, but it's almost like forced sometimes. Yeah, it, it certainly is. It certainly is not wanting to become a helicopter parent, right? So mm-hmm. like that's sort of a phrase that is, I guess, popular today. I definitely don't want to be that. Um, and I, me and my wife have decided that Two years ago, we started, we, we watched the show. I can't even remember what it was called. You watch one or two episodes about these um, kids in Japan that get sent out to go and buy groceries. Like, Oh, I've seen young, this. It's wild. Young, young yeah, kids. They yeah. like walk my, like a mile or two miles, exactly. something like that. Yeah, I've seen that. And because um, I've also been reading this book, The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. What is it calling? The cut. The coddling, the coddling of the American of the American, of the American mind. mind, meaning um, we're going to protect right. you, protect kids, protect kids at university. Um, but when you do that, and when you sort of remove um, things that challenge kids, I'm t- I'm now talking young kids. Mm. Um, they don't become resilient when they grow older, and so my wife and I just decided we're going to let the kids like go to the grocery store, which is across the road, and we can see from our window, we can see them so we can keep an eye on them. Um, but people did people did go like, what are What's you happening? Like, yeah, yeah, what are you doing? Like, this is New York City. But when I was a kid, when I was six years old, I was driving my bicycle to, um, to school every day. My son's now nine years old and we still walk him to school, which mm. I, <laughs> we live in a different world, sure. not in actual danger, mind you, I think it's literally just the perception because mm. we're all interconnected and we're all on social media. The dangers that you see in another part of the world, you sort of import that into your world, thinking that the world here is just as dangerous as it is somewhere else in the world, and it isn't. Mm. I grew up in South Africa. South Africa is super dangerous, um, but at six years old, I was riding my school 
you know, my bike to school alone. So I'm trying to give my kids that same autonomy um, and the same sort of brush up against reality so yeah. that they can learn the skills. Essentially, it's sort of like exposure therapy, expose them to things that um, that is challenging to them, but then they learn early on how to cope with it so that by the time, hopefully, they become, they become teenagers and adults, they have more autonomy, they have more agency, um, and and they're they're mentally i think that's the big thing they're mentally and spiritually strong and resilient right um and i think teaching the kids also like spiritual practices mm -hmm. uh you know in small ways teaching them about sacrifice um and how important that is for our for our experience as a, as humans i think that's i just I heard this thing by this guy called Andrew Huberman, right? Um, and he was talking about um, he was talking about cocaine, mm. and he was he was saying that the reason why cocaine, and I think in general drugs, are so bad for us, is because it short circuits the um, the reward, the sacrifice and reward system that the human body sort of operates on. So when you get drugs, you just get reward, yeah. And we're not used to getting, we're not used to that like- Just being handed something. Yeah, and that like feedback loop of reward, reward, yeah. reward. Um, we sort of need the sacrifice and then reward. And that's, we sort of, it's our meaning making systems are in that. Mm. And social media slowly but surely is sort of rewiring our kids' brains to just, uh, to love the reward and not be used to the sacrifice part. And I think, it makes kids really weak. It really like, I think really like algorithms for me is like, I have a really um, you had a pick, fraught you had relationship a, yeah. with social media, but in particular, like very algorithmatized mm. social media, YouTube being a massive part of that. Sure. YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. Um, they rewire our brains. We all know like as, as, People who have an understanding. I've, I've recognized it yeah, within myself. We've recognized Absolutely. it. Yeah. But particularly kids. Do you allow your kids on get, social media? YouTube? No. YouTube fraught relationship with it. Mm. Yes. He he tapped into it when he was a little kid and he became so used to it. Um, and we thought nothing of it at the time. And I didn't realize how sort of pernicious YouTube is. I mean, it's not even the fact that it's not that he could watch bad things. I don't even really care about that. That we can sort of look at and go, don't do that. It's the fact that he can just flick from the next to the next right. to the next. And when you take that thing away from him, it's like you're dealing with a demon. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that's my kid, but I can see how it can do that. I notice that a lot in restaurants. Right. Seeing yeah. parents with their kids and them, the kids, you know, getting upset at the dinner table and then just getting thrown an iPad for right. the rest of the dinner. Right. That to me has always been something that I recognize as a huge issue. Right. And not parenting your kids right. to like be at a dinner table. Like right. they're just away. They're right. mindless in a screen. Right. That I always found to be very weird. And so these, that's, I mean, that's exactly it. And that's what I, that's what I don't want my kids to become because I, okay, I'm going to go on a slight tangent. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Go with me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of things to sort of tie together here, but you can recognize what's happening to you when you engage with 
with that object, yeah. right? Like you're not as uh, mentally strong. Mm. Um, your emotions are all over the place, probably at the end of like spending two hours on an Instagram feed where you're seeing, um, you know, this DP just did that, that DP just did yeah. this, but in your mind, it's registering as the same DP that's done this project and now he's done that project. And But actually this DP hasn't done anything in six months and that right. DP doesn't have done anything in a year. And But to you, it's just, it's one DP, mm -hmm. you know? And so you're reminded of how shit you are and how inadequate you are. And it's such a lie. If you, if you whip out, I'm sorry, I have this here, but if you whip out this device and you look at the back of it, there's a there's an icon on it, right? Yeah. And the icon is of what? What do you see there? An apple that looks like it was half eaten. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and what story, like famous story, has an apple um, that's half eaten on it? Is it Adam and Eve? Yeah. Probably one of the most, the famous, most famous stories. stories. Yeah. Yeah. Why is... Why is that relevant? Adam and Eve was in the Garden of Eden. They were sort of in a utopia um, and things were good. They were jamming with God as the story goes. They were right in right relationship to each other. And then the temptation was, and the thing that God told them not to do was eat of the tree of knowledge. Mm. And... Um, and they were like, no, we're curious. We, we're not curious, I wouldn't say. It's actually, there was a thing of pride. Mm -hmm. We wanna be like God. We want this tap of knowledge, right? And instantly it created, as the story goes, it created the first fall of mankind. Again, don't know if that's history, don't care, but there's a truth in that story that yeah. we can see is self-evident. It's self-evident in our own human behavior. Um, I think the Tower of Babel is another story. It's like, we mm. wanna to ascend to have the greatness build this great tower. And then that whole thing gets broken down and our languages get into spirit. But what we're doing essentially is we are building a Tower of Babel. We are connecting with these devices. Um, we're all connecting to each other. Our languages, like accents are dying in the world. Mm. Languages are sort of like dying in the world. Like this, it's, so rare that I hear a New York accent. Mm. And it's a thing I loved about movies right. back in the day. <laughs> yeah. And I hardly hear that accent anymore. Um, and it's because these things are sort of, um, uh, what's the word, making, making everything the same. Mm. And also eroding our mental health. I yeah. think it's certainly doing that. If you look at mental health curves from like 1999, um, you go through 2007 when Facebook was introduced, when social media essentially was introduced, still sort of nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Mental health, suicide, su uh, suicidality curves sort of flat, still flat. And then when the algorithm was introduced, right. things just sort of went spiked, Skyrocketed, yeah. you know? And there's something I heard, and this is where my, I mean, there's already a little bit of like conspiracy theorist <laughs> theory vibes <laughs> in that, but, um, I heard the guys that did The Social Dilemma, I don't know if you've seen that yes. uh, on Netflix, they did they did a, a sort of like a TED talk thing on, I don't think it was TED necessarily a TED talk, but something similar to it called The AI Dilemma, where they talk about um, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. 
And they mentioned something in that, that to me was like a, I don't know. I just sort of like put my alarm bells on. They said, things in the AI domain didn't really progress until they realized that the key in artificial intelligence was hidden in language. So as soon as these computers could look at language, I think the first, like the first way that they trained ChatGPT, for instance, was um, they needed to find uh, what's the word, public use or free to use word uses usages. Sure. And I think they started on books and stuff, and then they sort of tapped that dry, and then they went to Amazon reviews, and they used Amazon oh, wow. reviews to sort of figure out the pattern of human speech and how to sort of, how to learn, mm. but it was hidden in words. And so these two guys have said that basically words decode and, uh, words decode and describe or define reality. Those are the words that they use. And I'm like, whoa, isn't that like, doesn't John one say that like, in the beginning was the word mm -hmm. and the word was with God and the word was God and everything that was created was created through the word and through the word, all things were sustained. Um, again, I don't know if that's just an allegory, but it's, there's an observation about reality in those scriptures that's so prescient. Yeah. And these guys are recognizing that words decode and define or describe reality, meaning that, and then they, they said this too, they said that these AI models basically create a shadow of the real world. It's not the real world, mm -hmm. but it's a shadow of the real world. We just see the shadows and it looks to us sort of like reality, but it isn't. It's the inversion of reality. It's the dark side right. of reality and it's a distortion of reality, mm -hmm. you know? And it made me think about, it even made me think about eschatologically mm. <laughs> even, um, whether we are at a sort of reaching sort of a critical point, yeah. you know? Um, uh, whether we are sort of reaching uh, a point where reality and its inverse is gonna be indistinguishable. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know. The do mark of the beast is a number. Mm. Do you see it's an algorithm, so anyway. <laughs> do you see that there could be, do you see any positives of what AI could bring to I think it's, art or to uh, just creativity in general life? Yeah, I see so many positives. Right. Do you think, do you battle with the idea that there are a lot of positives, but you don't want to see it sometimes? Like when I first heard of AI, I almost didn't want to even look like I was, right. I think it was just fear driven. Right. Until I opened my mind up to see like what it could be. Right. I mean, the, the positives are immense. Mm. I mean, we, we know it from using ChatGPT and using uh, Midjourney and, um, runway, all these things that are coming out, yeah. they, they're incredible. Um, even just in medicine, the stuff that's happening um, is 
it sort of blows the mind. I mean, I just, Ray Kurzweil, one of the, like the pioneers of artificial intelligence, I think he mentioned that like, he thinks immortality is possible by 2030. Mm -hmm. um, as AI and nanobiotechnology develops. Um, but I think what we're eroding is the thing that I mentioned earlier, our relationship with sacrifice and reward. We're, we're sort of eroding and neglecting the fact that we actually find meaning when things get really tough and when things get really hard. And that's, that's a really hard thing to wrestle with. And what do I know? I'm not a philosopher. Um, I'm, I'm really just speaking from personal experience. Mm -hmm. But I can also say that like my most truest touch or encounter with reality itself, with God, for me, was in my lowest moments. Mm. And when you start to erode that and take that away, and that's what these systems are doing, they're taking it away. They're making it easier for us to have convenience, to not fight for our food, which we're not really doing anymore. Um, when we, and when people sort of hark on religion, especially for being so brutal, because why would anyone call for sacrifice? Sure. And I'm like, sacrifice has really only been abstracted. We so we still have an implicit relationship with sacrifice. If you wanna, if you wanna be better at your craft, you're gonna choose not to go out with your friends exactly. and go drink or party because you wanna focus on writing. Yeah. Or if you wanna get into better shape, you're gonna choose not to have that slice of cake <laughs> and do a workout instead. Yeah. And so, and that's all sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you don't, if you can't recognize sacrifice, the sort of the religious idea of sacrifice as being useful and you discount it, you, you sort of do so at your own peril. Mm -hmm. Because I think, again, sort of from experience, I know that those things that have tested me most have been also the, the things that I've sort of learned the most about myself, about my surroundings. Um, about my family, just about how I now, I feel like, who am I to say, but I feel like now I better understand how reality works. Mm. Um, the book of Job, for instance, to me has been like a massive, I've learned so much from that story, right? Mm. Everything went wrong with jo uh, for Job. Um, again, as the story goes, um, the devil came to, the devil came to God and said, oh, you have such a loyal follower, such a um, devout believer uh, in Job. Um, but what happens if I test him? And again, I, I may be sort of phrasing this incorrectly, but he hasn't really been tested. Mm -hmm. And so God said, you may touch him. Oh, you may, you may take from his land, you may, but do not touch him. And as the story grows, Job never, uh, Job, something goes wrong with Job, his land gets taken, um, but he doesn't curse God. And then his family gets hurt, he doesn't curse God. And he gets smitten with disease and all his friends are now saying like, why don't you just curse God and die? And he doesn't. Because he understood that if you sort of have that relationship with reality, with God, if you sort of become 
cynical and pessimistic, mm. then things, like I was saying, things turn bad, right. things turn worse. Um, and I've learned so much from that story. I think I've also learned a lot from the story of the guy that wrote, It Is Well With My Soul, that old hymn, mm. because things went horribly bad. If you read the story of what happened to that guy, but to still be able to say, despite all of that, it is what, and it's hard. I, I know that costs you something, right? Um, I think to still be able to say that, I don't know how many people can say that today in 2023, when their whole systems have been rewired to only get what they want. Right. I can recognize that I myself, the more I'm on these devices, I can see it in my kids, I can see it all around me, but I can really see it in myself. The more I'm on these devices, the less of a good father and a good husband mm. and a good son I become and the more entitled I become. Right. And the harder it is to go when I get hit with something adversarial to go, you know what? I'm gonna just take this lesson and learn from it. Um, I think social media really social media and anything algorithmic algorithmic can can be to blame for that yeah. you know i think it's it's really tough i i i recognize all of that too but there's also that positive side of social media too and like the business and like how we want to share our creative work with the world and I, there's always that push and pull for me with social media as well yeah um and i i don't know if like you notice this but within for me, when I'm in a very like positive state or I'm feeling, I'm feeling good, uh, maybe I'm, I'm busy. Social media is great. Social media is great. Yeah. But when I am feeling bad, I yeah. haven't been booked in, you know, however yeah. long something's going wrong. Social media is the, it's a curse to me. And, but I'm going to address something there. Why is that? You've said something in there that I think is so like. Curse. No, you've said. I only say mm. this because I recognize this. Is it when I said something is going wrong, social media is bad? Is it because I'm on social media too much at that moment? Exactly. Right. Only because- I think you're absolutely right. Because yeah. when things are going well- mm. I'm more present and not really engaging too much in that. You're not, pre you're present, you're not really engaging. And also, Maybe this is not true for you, but I know this about myself. It's so much easier to post something on social media yeah. when you're busy right. and you're not looking at it. And it's like, oh, that thing's, you know, people are liking it. Great. I feel good. But when you're not busy, you're sitting there, you have nothing to release. Mm -hmm. You're only taking in. You're not putting out. Oh, yeah. You're only taking in. It's like really cancerous. Yes. Because now you're comparing yourself to other people. You're feeling really horrible, horrible about yourself. You're seeing, again, like I said, this person has done that, that person has done that, that person has done that. But to you, psycho subconsciously, it's like one person is just constantly putting out, how can you compete with that person? Yeah. And so social media is great when you're putting out. Yeah. Mm. It really sort of sucks when you we're don't have anything to put out. Right. And that's it sucks that that's the reality right. um, because it just, again, shows us how egotistical we are, right. mm. you know? I feel like I delete Instagram 
once a month, twice a month, maybe. Right. I, I, for me, that's like, because uh, it's still, I'm still, I have such a habit of just going on it and like mm -hmm. just scrolling. It's, I tell myself all the time, I'm going to break this habit, but it is, it, I think it is truly one of the hardest habits to break for people right. is that just mindless scrolling. Right. I don't know. I don't know if you have any, I don't know if you still do like just mindless scrolling, but that's, that's something that I have a really hard time breaking sometimes. I really try not to, honestly, yeah. I, I am not, I'm not good at it. I think where I'm worse at is YouTube. Like it's got a more, I think I've sort of recognized there's a couple of aspects mm. to social media that I think sort of nefarious. And with, with um, Instagram, you have a double whammy. One is the, the, sheer, um, the sheer fact of comparison yeah. that you're not doing something that someone else is doing. So that's the one. The other one is just sort of the sheer act of scrolling. Yeah. It's the fact that it has controlled your mind and you're just sort of doing this and there's that, I think it's something that's happening more psychologically and I dare to say even spiritually mm. is that they've hooked you. Again, what they say in social media, you're a user, same word used for drug, mm. for drug addicts. So they've, they've hacked your attention and now there's an atrophying, there's a spiritual atrophying that's happening. There's like a human atrophying that I think is happening. Yeah. Um, cause really, very rarely do I feel positive after right. scrolling. Like honestly, never, right. there's never a really a positive feeling afterwards. Right. I think I've been able to sort of like recognize the comparison aspect, mm. but I'm, and I feel like I can sort of like, that's, a, I, I feel like I don't go on Instagram nearly as much as I used to, because I've recognized that because now all of a sudden the comparison aspect is very personal. Now I'm thinking about someone mm. that I can need you, to beat, and I don't want to deeper think that into way. the comparison thing of how you kind of maybe overcame that a little bit, or how you've worked through that. Because I I still am in that big time for sure. I think in between twenty eight and thirty two, um, I had I had sort of started to recognize again, sort of at the first at my first breaking point when I, when I feel like I sort of had that encounter with the deepest reality with, for me, with God, I sort of recognized that I was chasing stories or ideas that was trying to sort of be cool mm -hmm. and be accepted and maybe relevant, um, but had none of, what I truly believe about myself and about the world and about how reality works. Um, again, I was 28 and maybe you don't even really know that, but I know my parents are missionaries. I grew up in a Christian family. Um, as a teenager, I didn't want to admit, admit, really admit that to a lot of people, even into my early adolescence. Like mm. um, when I first moved to New York, I didn't really want to tell stories that came from that part of me because, you know, I feel like there'd be an hostility to it. And I get it. Like, you know, the, the, the Christianity or, or the religious aspect of religion in America has sort of a different connotation, well, maybe all over the world, but here this it's quite militant. Mm. Um, and there's not a lot of grace and love in it. And so I get 
that because a lot of, and I understood that because a lot of people saw religion in that way or faith, um, there was sort of a hostility to it. Um, and so I was like, oh, I don't want to go down there. I just, I want to work and I want to yeah. make work that feels cool. And so, because so that I could get accepted, um, you know, and we all do that with different parts of our own selves. Like we'll sort of hide parts of our own self um, just so that we're accepted. And that's the part of me that felt sort of the most deeply me that I was sort of hiding. And then when I had that, that moment, um, my sort of rock bottom, I think there was sort of a realization that actually this is the thing that gives me the most life. And mm. weirdly enough, I think part of the way that I saw the world and believed uh, about myself in the world was sort of seeping through my work anyway. But it was the first time that I realized, you know what? I think I can value this, this part of me and I don't really wanna look at anything else. I sort of wanna, explore what's in me and read articles and read books that bring my that deep interest of mine. Mm. And it's always tangentially seeping into some other areas of interest. Um, but I wanna listen to that voice that's sort of inside me. And I realized that I'm just not gonna get that from Instagram. Mm. I'm not like, and so the comparison side of me died down because I sort of realized, you know what? I think the things that I'm looking for, um, not a lot of, I also just sort of recognized not a lot of other people dare to go there, you know? Um, Malik goes there, um, Scorsese goes there, Tarkovsky goes there, um, um, uh, what's the other guy's name? Kislowski goes there and these have become, I think for me, these have become the, the, the people that I really look up to. Yeah. And I've mentioned them before, those are the people that sort of follow the curiosity. They also just happen to be people that are, I mean, David Lynch um, is another person that sort of follows his curiosity who I don't think, I mean, he's a spiritualist. He's not, I don't think we, we necessarily have the same faith or belief system, but, it's those sort of people that I realize. actually, I wanna, I don't wanna be influenced by things that's on Instagram or things yeah. that are outside me that is, that's trendy. And so now I'm like, now I need to be trendy or now I'm like, it's like a writing a test, right? Like where the clock's running out because I have a bad relationship to time. Like I said before, mm -hmm. I can feel like there's things that I wanna yeah. figure out and do before my time runs out, which is stupid, but still a human feeling of mine. Um, I feel like now I can be a little bit more patient and go, you know what? There's a story in me that I want to tell uh, and I really want to dig that story out. And it's not related to this thing or that thing that this person has just done. Um, of, of course, there's things that I've seen that's going to sort of bleed into me um, subconsciously. But I think that's why I've been able to have a better, better relationship to... I think the social media platform that creates the most comparison. Mm. Um, and I sort of pivoted to YouTube just because it was sort of a fountain of things that I was curious about. It could sort of answer, it could help me with research. But I realized that it has that same algorithm yeah. that's stealing all my attention. Mm. 
And now I'm watching videos about uh, Whistling Diesel, you know, the guy that like blows up all these cars and, you know, and I'm like, I lost track of the thing that I was searching, yeah. you know? Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're all pernicious, I think at base level because they steal your attention. Mm. I think Instagram perhaps is even a little bit more pernicious because it's so bad for comparison. I, I wanna go back because you said something that I think really opened my eyes to something about comparison and your journey from 28 to 32, I think you said that you were trying to- That's when I had my first kid too. Mm -hmm. So at 25 where I am, I feel like I'm in this personal turmoil right now of over the past two or so years, really trying to find where, what I believe in, what my faith is. Right. Cause I'd say about six, seven years ago, my dad became a pastor or uh -huh. a preacher, Right. became a preacher. He got, uh, he's a born again Christian. Right. And in the beginning, I didn't want to hear any of it. Right. I, I grew up going to church, but it was only because I was like forced to go on a Sunday because right. it was the right thing to do. So right. I had a very weird relationship with it. Right. And when I would have conversations with him, the conversation started shifting from like me and my dad to me and my dad and a spiritual dad. So it was mm. like, I almost, I, I think I remember telling him one time, I was like, I don't want to talk to, you know, you about the spiritual stuff. I just want to talk to you. And it took me a as really, dad. as dad, mm -hmm. and it took me a really, really long time. I'd say four years to be able to like understand what he was talking about. And I remember vividly him saying, I know that you're not, you may not be interested in what I want to tell you right now, but just know that I'm planting seeds. Mm -hmm. And he was like, he was so right. Like I'd say probably two years ago, I really started to like, dive into Christianity more. Mm -hmm. I started listening to music. Like I said, Oceans mm -hmm. was a huge player for me in that. Mm -hmm. Still listen to it to this right. day all the time. And I think that's something that I haven't really publicly like put out there in the mm -hmm. world. And I think this podcast has actually been a platform for me to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I did an episode uh, maybe two months ago with somebody. And this was, that was the first time I actually publicly talked about it. Mm -hmm. And I it, think I saw that. And it felt really good mm -hmm. um, to talk about it. And that's why I'm interested in talking about it with you. But mm -hmm. that was, maybe that's something that I struggle with comparison because I haven't committed to what I truly believe in yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. I think, again, I, I empathize with where you're coming from because I think there's so many distortions of Christianity, but I mean, I would probably say probably a lot of faiths, but particularly in the US, there's so many distortions. And I think when people get exposed to a bad version of it, which a lot of people do, it just mm. turns them off. And I, I get it. Um, and what is the one true faith? I don't know. All I can say is I've sort of had an encounter with something, with someone um, that, changed me that like it that gave me my identity back um mm. when i had nothing and um part of that journey was um again the seeds that my dad planted when i was young and i didn't want to hear about it right. at all but the thing that i would see was i would come into the living room in the middle of the night because we're you know we're insomniacs my whole family and I would wake up, need to go to the bathroom, and I'd see my dad, and he'd be sitting in the 
in the lounge. I'm like, oh, dad, what you up to? And he's like sitting cross-legged on the couch. And he's like, I'm sitting on God's lap. I was like, oh, what does that mean? Um, but I now recognize that he sort of has had all his life to this day, a spiritual practice that allows him to sort of return to I'm beloved. Mm -hmm. And when you, I think really when you act out of that place, um, it's a whole place, you know, uh, you're not perfect. Like that, yeah. you're not gonna behave perfectly. Um, you're not gonna have a perfect view of yourself. Um, but I think, It's really, yeah, it's hard to articulate because it's hard to sound overly spiritual and it's hard to sound like you're preaching. That's sure. not what I'm trying to do. Yeah, it's yeah. just, I think I sort of recognize your journey. Uh, I've definitely had that. Um, I, I can definitely share that that journey. Um, and I think the, the seeds that your dad has planted, I think it's amazing that you're sort of seeing the fruit of that. Um, and I know everyone's journey is going to be different and some people are not going to be comfortable even with us sort of talking about it sure. in this way. And that's something I recognize too, is that by me even talking about it, I know that there's going to be people that don't want to hear this at all. Yeah. And that's fine. And, I, uh, and, and that's I, fine, I you know? Yeah. yeah. I think, I do think it's important for people to sort of like. But the one, I will say this too, though, that one podcast that I did uh, two months ago with, uh, his name's Mark. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time we, I talked about it and you know, I put some stuff up about it. The amount of positive feedback that I got from people that saying like, thank you for sharing this right. or like talking about it. Right. It actually showed me a whole new side of people that right. I never allowed myself to even open up myself to. Right. Right. I, and I think I wonder I'm not saying I know, but I wonder if a lot of that is of people who probably relate in the same way, but you're probably not going to find that from people who don't relate mm. in that, you know, um, meaning people that don't share the the worldview or the way that you see the world in that, will they'll probably not say anything. Um, but a lot of people that are sort of like, they themselves are, um, are, you know, have a faith or have a, a, a spirituality that don't feel, cause it's not, a, it's not a, in our business in the world in general, it's just not something we talk about. And so when you do hear someone talk about it, when I hear, um, you know, when I do hear Scorsese talk about it or even um, uh, Hawk, Ethan Hawk talk about it or Jim Carrey talk about his spirituality or Nick Cave for me has been like a recent, uh, just such a, it's just so encouraging seeing him talk about the, the way that he's sort of processing those aspects of himself. It, it is very encouraging, mm. but I am also aware, I, I heard someone say it and I think it's really true. Um, uh, there's nothing like a gift that someone, or there's nothing like a treasure that someone have to discover themselves, you know? Mm. Um, and I think that's true for everyone's sort of individual journey. Um, life, I think sort of thrust me to my knees um, and and I just had nowhere, lower wasn't an option because nowhere, lower meant sort of the end and I didn't wanna go there and I sort of reached out and I think that was my deepest touch with reality, you know? Mm -hmm. well, thank you for sharing all that. I do no, appreciate no it. Yeah. Uh, I know that a lot of people probably wanna hear about like the 
actual filmmaking side, but I have one more question about like family and stuff. Uh, did you always want to be a father? Um, I'm trying I, to think. I, no. I've recognized that I, I think part of my calling is to be a dad. Right. And I'm really excited to be a dad right. one day. I didn't think I, I didn't think I would, I didn't think I would, <laughs> I didn't think I would be a good dad. Let me put it that way. <laughs> but that's not insinuating that I am a good dad. I just didn't think that I would be good. Yeah. Or let me try to think of a different way to phrase that. I thought I would be a bad dad. Mm. Maybe that's the better way to phrase it. Um, and so that scared me because I just wasn't a child person. I just what, wasn't a kid. Is person. that what made you think that? Just the fact that you yeah. weren't a child person? Nothing yeah. else besides? No, mm. nothing else. I just wasn't into kids. When yeah. I, was, I didn't like hanging out with kids. Um, <laughs> the the pastor's kid. So my one of my best friends. Um, he was a kid person. He was also a model. Um, and I always thought, okay. <laughs> all the chicks are gonna go for yeah. this guy because he's like, you know, he's into kids yeah, he's and he's super handsome, super tall. And um, my wife chose me. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think it just came, you know, I think the, even as a, even as a, as a young, as a young dad, I was, I was afraid of like, when is this sort of the emotion gonna come? Mm. And someone warned me, a close friend of mine said, look, a lot of people talk about this like weight of emotion that comes over you when your child gets born. And I didn't have it. I didn't have it for eight months. Really? Yeah. Did that worry you? Um, I'm trying to really, I'm trying to really think, did it worry me? No, I don't think it worried me as much just because I had that heads up. Uh just because I had that heads up. And then when it came like eight months, 12, 14 months, two years, 18 months, two years, three years, it's like, oh my, oh my God, if anything were to happen to these kids, like I, I, don't, I don't know how, like, I don't know how I would go on, mm. you know? And uh, that you don't know you have that in you. I didn't know, cause I wasn't a kid person. So I didn't know I could even, I mean, I didn't love, I didn't realize I could love anyone like that. Like I love my mom, I love my dad, I love my wife, I love my sister. Um, but it's a different knowing, it's a different kind of love knowing that these people are, these kids are dependent on you mm -hmm. and they are of you, mm -hmm. you know, um, that realization. And then you see bits of yourself in, in your kids. I mean, I see in my daughter particularly my daughter actually is so unlike me. She's like me in some ways, but she's so unlike me in that she's so wild. I was never that wild, like wild, but in the best way. Mm. Um, I'm like, who are, like, who <laughs> are you? You know, um, you, in a like way- Spontaneous, wild. Spontaneous, wild, crazy, sings, uh, boisterous, yeah. <laughs> and a natural sort of actor, mm. a natural showman, not me at all. Um, and I'm, my son, we're more cerebral, more, we're more like my dad and my grandfather. Um, but my daughter is like, you put, a, you, know, you put a camera on her and she comes alive. <laughs> and um, to be able to see that and recognize that 
that it did come from me. Mm. Part of part of me is in that person, but also to go, I've never had a person like this in my life. I would always sort of judge that person of like they're putting on a show. Mm-hmm. But no, this is innately my daughter, innately. From the womb, she came out screaming, top of her lungs, (laughs) and we're like, how's, you know, what's what's this ride gonna be like? And it's been the best. Mm -hmm. And then my son has been like more like me. Um, And I spent, like I said, when I was walking up here, like we're gonna go snowboarding together. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's many sides to the parental coin Mm. um, and many sides of yourself that you see in your kids. But I think I was sort of like taken aback by my my daughter just because she's so other than me, but she's also, I think had me much through her, I've had so much more grace for people that are unlike me, Mm. who maybe I would have judged before. I try, really try not to uh, judge in any way. Um, but like, I always there is some natural humanistic element to judge, though. Right? Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, part of me really admires, and perhaps even judge. And how's that possible to do both of those? But people that could be really extroverted, mm. um, and because I'm not that, sometimes I feel like, wow, someone's putting on a show. But damn, I wish I could put on a show like they're putting on because. Maybe, and again, the ego part of me goes, maybe it'll get me into that meeting mm. or that door would open to me because only, I hate network, networking. It's some, not something I'm very comfortable with, mm. but I know people that really are comfortable with it and they do it second nature. They do it so well. One of my best friends does it so well. Like, ah, oh, damn, I wish I was sort of like that. Um, but sometimes it mm. feels to me like, oh, is that just show? But it's not, it's, um, it's innately who they are. And I, I can now say that because I have my daughter in my life, amazing. You know, who's a natural <laughs> showman. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I, have, I wanna read a, something that you said. I'm gonna move a little bit towards more career uh, something, but I think I read this in an article you did with Musicbed a long time ago, I think. Cause I remember you started your career, your creative career in music mm-hmm. and you know, you've obviously evolved into where you are today. So there's a bunch of different paths, but as a director in the beginning, you said something about music being a driving factor mm-hmm. in your storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you said, when I first started, everything I made had a musical anchor, mm-hmm. even with narratives, it was still anchored and held together with music. But what I'm trying to do at the moment is lose all of that. It's an exercise in growth. Can I create something good that doesn't just rely on my strengths? It's important to do something you're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I guess years later, how, after hearing that, how mm-hmm. do you think you have grown from saying that? Well, I, I mean, just to use a, an example of that, a practical example of that, I think sometimes I'd think about a story, I'd sort of see an image. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that I would do is I create a playlist. Mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore. I now like, I work on outlines, first things, or log line, character descriptions, outlines, and then I'll then I'll start writing. Um, and for a lot of projects, I haven't even made playlists um, because I'm trying to really think about character and story. I mean, the arguments that my, my wife and I had last night was about story and character mm. and within the edit or within the future that you're making yeah within yeah within some of the longer form stuff that mm-hmm. i'm working on um and it's really something that i'm 
I mean, I would say that these days it's not even a cognitive thing. It's because I've sort of exercised that out of my process or, or it's perhaps even my curiosity now is sort of, I'm much more interested in understanding how people behave. Mm. Um, and for me in particular, I think I'm often very interested in stories where the location is a character, is a um, invisible character in the in the film. Because I think the location and the stories that I'm interested in, the location puts sort of a pressure on the relationships and the characters and makes them behave or is part of their behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, uh, I, I did a short film in Ukraine before the war started. Um, and it's very much a story of character and place. Right. Um, and then I just shot one out in Trona. Um, and again, it's about, um, a story about character and place. And mm. then the one that I'm working on right now, uh, said here in Coney Island, Brighton Beach is the same. And it's just about how the environment sort of puts pressure on people and then how do they behave because of that. Mm. Um, and the, the environment, when I say place and environment, can be both the buildings, the landscape, um, but also the sort of... Um, without without trying to sound too smart, but sort of the, like the geopolitics of an area, mm. you know, like what's what's happening um, in a particular area and how's that affecting the family story you're telling. Um, you know, and inherently would you go, is every story sort of like that? Perhaps, but even if I look at the sort of films that I love, like Godland mm -hmm. from this year, you know, a missionary that travels from uh, Denmark to Iceland, but really struggles because the land is so harsh against his mission. Um, uh, Oppenheimer, right. you know, sort of a similar similar thing. Um, Past Lives, New, the New York Korean factor. I love that movie. Um, yeah, yeah, so I think it has shifted away from music to answer mm. your question, because I think my interests have changed a little bit. Um, over the over the last couple of years, do you remember like a, a project that you did? Maybe it was one of your first ones where you realized that you're really focusing on character and story. And after completing it, did you realize a shift in yourself of like, oh, this this feels different. Like this feels like a different project. If no, because I think it's been, and I think that's been a lot of my career. And, I've, and I find it tricky sometimes when people say, when I hear people say, oh, this is gonna change my career mm. or this is gonna be so different or, but, but, but particularly um, this is gonna be my break. Right. And people would sort of say, they'll say that about a particular project. This is gonna be the thing that's either so good or so different that people are gonna see me different. Because from my, I think it, it is true for some people but I think for a lot of people, it's the slow and steady, it's the slow and steady race um, that I think is better for a person first, for just for our mental well-being, um, And I think is also just the general story. But a lot of people sort of give up because our society 
TikTok and Instagram and YouTube tells us that we need that breakout success. But mm. I don't think that's, I don't think that's really everyone's story. It's, a lot, it's not a lot of people's stories. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've, recogn I've also recognized within myself that, like for instance, right now I'm trying to work on comedies. Um, like I'm trying to write a comedy like The Emperor's Got No Clothes. I'm trying to write a feature version of that. That's sort of like, um, uh, that's sort of a critique on culture, but also you can have a lot of fun with it um, about a young emperor who, or a young kid who's become emperor, grew up entitled, obsessed with fashion, um, but his whole country is starving. Uh, it's sort of the Marie Antoinette story as well, but I sort of want to find, I think in a weird way, the parable or the Hans Christian Andersen version of it is way more potent because mm. you have what you find in a lot of like Eastern Orthodox stories, you have the holy fool, the little kid who's able to see reality and call out what reality truly is. There's just a lot of room for comedy in that. But when people look at my work, they're probably gonna go, you know, it'll be like, oh, he's doing comedy now, perhaps. I actually did a music video, weirdly enough, that sort of inspired that idea about these child dictators. Mm. Uh, it's a music video I've for young it. fathers. Yeah. And I really wanted, I've thought for a long time, oh, how can I turn that into, how can I turn that sort of idea into a feature? And then recently, The Emperor's Got No Clothes sort of stood out to me, ah, oh, that's the story. And it's really the story of one of those mm. kids, you know, and that's the story I want to tell. But I think to a lot of people, and I remember even like a lot of people said to me like, oh, that's something different, you know, didn't, not didn't think you had it in you, but it's nice to see you trying something different. And I think they're all behind the scenes. They're all slow steps sure. that I've like, uh, I've written, um, you know, a story about a priest who gets a hard on, um, a celibate priest who gets a hard on while baptizing um, one of his parishioners. Um, and I think I'm gonna like set it in like some Eastern European country. So it's like Orthodox priest. Mm -hmm. Um, but he sees it as a sign of God that he needs to go find a partner. And it's a journey of someone shedding the religious layers that they've carried for so long and trying to reintegrate back into life and just playing with the, like, I wanna do it sort of like subjective interview style where people that we interview from his community and he himself can sort of relay their their truth, so to speak, his truth, they see it a little bit objectively, but also they're influenced by him. And then do objective storytelling, do different frame, uh, action, uh, aspect ratios to tell that story. Mm -hmm. And then you tell the story of what actually happened and you sort of intercut that and you can use that comedically mm -hmm. um, as this priest is trying to sort of just reintegrate back to life. So that's another story. I've got another story about a Romany matriarch that Gucci or a big fashion house has stolen her designs. Um, and she's trying to like get her whole um, little uh, village together to stage uh, her show um, using models from her village and people to help, you know, do scenes and uh, patterns and stuff from her village to stage a show outside an actual fashion show and to sh sort of show that she's the, the, real, yeah. the real deal. Um, and others, 
that I've sort of like worked on. Sure. But if you don't sort of know my process, just like anyone's, you just don't know that I'm working on these things. Mm. And, but it's slow growth. It's like slowly trying to, you know, stretch another part of the muscle. And so I can't really look back and go, oh, you know, that was the thing that felt like a sort of a sea she- a shift mm. uh, change in the work. Um, there are pieces though that I can look at and go, you know what? that finally feels like something that I really wanted to make that was sort of unencumbered by client or agency expectation. And I really want to do more of that. Do you think a lot of passion projects? Yeah. Most of them are passion Mm. projects. Yeah. Do you think over the, you know, the years that you've been filmmaking, obviously the scale of your work has grown and the potential of crew equipment, the overall scope scope of a project has grown. Do you think, Creating passion projects, you have to maintain a certain scope. No, (laughs) no, and I'm sorry I'm saying it so, but I'm saying that to myself because I think that's the temptation. Yeah, is again, it's that temptation of the ambition. Mm. Yeah, it has to go bigger, and it has to go. Like I really love it when filmmakers sort of return. I'm I'm hoping the day will come when Denis Villeneuve will return to some of the smaller works. Not like I don't like Dune or Blade Runner. But the intimate stuff, RSD or Polytechnic, mm. was like, oh, they they hit here, right. you know. Um, What's well, like the idea of what you said? Not looking at your previous work is like, oh, I need to do top some that. top that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing. I don't. I've just believed. I've started to believe that actually that's a very bad way of thinking about mm. longevity and creativity Mm -hmm. is I need to top this. Like, okay, well then like, what's gonna be your top, you know? Like, and is other people's definition of top gonna be the same as your definition I was just gonna say, what even is that definition of top? Cause for me, I always think like, oh, my next work has to visually look so much better than the next, but like, that's that's a subjective thing. Right. It's like, it's arbitrary what is top. Exactly, exactly. It's just, for me, I guess like as a, director or filmmaker, director. um, I think I'm just sort of recognizing as long as it's sort of honest and it's exploring something that means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. That's it. Because even I sort of get not frustrated, but it sort of saddens me when I hear people go, oh, like, you know, when are you gonna sort of transition into features? As if- Like you're shedding a new layer or something. Exactly, and as if doing passion projects and music videos is sort of like lower than, Mm. you know? Um, It isn't. I wanna go make some features, but then I still, if a song compels me, moves me, I wanna make a music video. I'll put my own money into it if I have to, like I try and always do, Mm. Um, or just, I'm not trying to put my own money. I'm just trying to make the thing that needs to be made. Mm. Sometimes that's going to be a music video. I did this um, this film called You Will Not Have My Hatred, just about a, a, a piece of writing that I truly believe in. So sometimes it's going to be some format agnostic thing. Sometimes it's going to be a documentary. I want to make a, I want to make a film about, and I don't even know what it's necessarily going to be, is I don't think it's going to be a narrative. I don't even know if it's going to be a documentary. Maybe it's going to be some pastiche, um, mixed media sort of thing about the fine structure constant, 
the alpha. Mm. Um, and um, there's this scientist, Richard Feynman, who wrote about the fine structure constant. Ro uh, Roger Deacon, uh, not Deacons, Richard Hawkins, Richard Dawkins, sorry, um, and Christopher Hitchin uh, talk about uh, all the arguments for faith. And I go, oh, the, mo the moral arguments suck. Um, there's so many arguments that really suck, but the one that's really, really compelling is the fine, is the fine tuning argument. The fact that the universe, if you throw out one little iota of the parameters of our distance to the sun, for instance, this thing doesn't work. We don't exist. Mm. Not only do we don't exist, but cells don't exist. Um, and so it's this idea that the universe is finely tuned and the universe is actually so finely tuned to a specific number, one over 137. So if you go and research that number, it's the number alpha. Um, and it's, and I may be getting this wrong sort of technically, but hopefully you can go sort of with the thrust of what I'm saying. Sure. But that number is a number that a lot of scientists, it's, it's a unitless number. So it doesn't have meters or anything. It's, a, it's sort of a, I don't want to, Again, I might get this scientifically or mathematically incorrect, but it's sort of a number without units. It's sort of a pure number, but it's a number that when scientists puts it puts it into some of these equations, the equations just work. Mm. And so this number doesn't just appear in one equation. It seems to appear across a variety yeah. of yeah. Uh, equations that sort of dis uh, that describes the universe. And Richard Feynman, this scientist, spoke about this number and he said, um, I have this number up on my wall and I keep looking at this number because it haunts me. I don't know where this number comes from. Um, and then he says something like, um, but I imagine this number was sort of, um, was written by God or something like this. And there's something so for me, so super curious about that number, almost like, you know, again, I don't know if this is going to be a feature, but like the number pi, right? right. Uh, the movie pi. Um, there's something curious, deeply curious about this number. And I feel like I want to find the story there, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. I, and again, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's going to be a feature, but it's really piquing my curiosity. Um, and just me as a person, like I feel my own sense of value in understanding that everything was uniquely tuned mm. and designed. And if you throw the balance out of one of those things, I don't exist. So I'm sort of innately tied <laughs> to that number. So are you, you know? Right. Um, so anyway, all that to say, I think um, I try and just go where the, where the curiosity leads. Mm. Do you, With all the different projects that you, stories that you want to tell and uh, all this, you know, just ideas, how often are you talking about it with like your peers or like agents or people like that? Or like, when do you, how do you decide like, this is the next story that I want to tell? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's tough. That's, that's tough. And it's tougher recently because I feel like, of late, um, there's just been so many stories. And like I said, I think I wonder that I'm, and I don't say that as a good thing because I think the, the reality 
that I'm sort of facing is I, I, I struggle to go deeper in each mm. one of them. And that's the thing that I really wanna do. And so I think what I'm, what I'm sort of doing now is I'm birthing ideas and at the same time holding them with an open hand and going, I don't know for what time this is or whether at all, whether it was just something that needed to be exercised mm -hmm. through me and just needed to come out as a purge on the page, but was never meant to see the screen or in a different way. And that within itself was the exercise as a writer mm. um, and as a person, there was therapy that needed to happen through that right. process. Um, but there's a stack of things that I think has a, have shaped to them. And I'm trying to sort of like read the moment, read the room for which one has life on it. Um, as opposed to also the thing that I've realized is when you sort of like go, okay, this is next and then this follows that and then that follows that, it just doesn't work in right. that order. And in, in that regard, when you decide, all right, this is, this is what I'm pursuing next, has there ever been a moment while in the midst of pursuing it, you lose inspiration in that project? Yeah. I mean, it's happening with something that I did now just because I think sometimes you suffer heartbreak mm -hmm. over money not coming in for this thing. And then there's a project that I was trying to do and we had most of the money and it died um, during the strikes and sort of during the pandemic. And I was like, okay, that's not, that's not probably meant to happen. Mm. And then it sort of came back and I've not allowed myself to sort of mentally dig back into it until now where it's, where it might be more of a reality. So um, I think you, we all need to have our own sort of tempered relationship with our creative, knowing how much things need to stuck their claw or teeth into us in order to get a hold of us, mm. in order to be in order for us to be disciplined enough to pull it out. Uh, and we need to do that work. And again, sometimes it's just the, um, sometimes the end result of this of that is just getting it onto the, to the page. That's it. That's what it needed to be. And sometimes it is, no, it's all the way through to the end. Mm -hmm. But you may write something that you don't shoot for 10 years and being comfortable with knowing, okay, you know, I'm not gonna invest myself emotionally now so much into this that if it doesn't happen, my heart breaks. Right. And then I can't write anything because I just, I, I don't believe in the system and I don't mm. believe in filmmaking anymore because it's so corrupt. Because yeah. this person, you know, we all can get into that trap. Yeah. I mean, that could, that could tie into the point of you thinking that this project is gonna be the next big thing for exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's holding, holding, it's being a good vessel, right? Mm. So that's what I really love about Rick Rubin. He talks about like, right. we're just vessels. I love that idea because I think that's true. Sometimes you, because I think sometimes <laughs> what also happens is you create something and you look at the thing you create and it's like, oh, wow, did that come from me? Not like, oh, wow, that's so great. But, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't know 
I had that story in me. Right. And sometimes the story sort of speaks back to you and you learn from it. Cause that's happened to me. I did a music video for a band called Aya and I didn't know, I didn't even know what I wanted to say. And then when I saw the final result, I was sort of able to go, oh, that's what it was teaching me. And it was all about our phone and it was all about the story of Adam and Eve, so to speak. Um, and I think knowing, knowing when to go, ah, 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 that's really important because if you keep going, yeah, accept it, accept it, accept it. Then I think you sort of get into mm. the trap of, um, of well, that thing is just going to break your heart. Um, and actually, now now you're sort of holding on to it as if it was your thing, your baby. And actually, you were just supposed to be a steward, bringing it to life, mm. and then um, and then and a vessel, and allowing it to sort of come of you. But it's not yours, you know. Don't hold on to it too tightly because it's not yours anyway. Mm. Um, Again, maybe I'm over-spiritualizing, but I mean, even these tools help me deal with um, my own work, you know, and not to become too sort of um, navel-gazing in it because it's easy to sort of hold on to something as like, ah, oh, this is mine, right. but then all your emotions get hung up on it. Now, when the thing doesn't go your way, your mind and your mental health is sort of spiraling right. out of control. And so, I mean, all these tools, I think these spiritual tools are just helpful right. mentally, you know? And that goes, again, that ties, I think, also into the fact of, you know, being so deeply focused and, uh, you know, wanting to do that thing that you forget about the other things in your life right. as well. Right, right. Which, um, yeah, it's so easy that's to a happen. challenge. Yeah, super easy to happen. And Even the good things. Even the good things can become mm. bad things. Mm. Meaning, you know, I, I hear a lot of people talk about passion projects, like, oh yeah, it's like, you know, we should do that and they're struggling to do that, um, you know, uh, struggling to prioritize that. And... Um, struggling to prioritize doing the passion project? Yeah. Mm, because yeah. But, they might be too busy with or they, they might not be well, too enamored, they, too mm. enamored with the money that comes from commercials. Right. And they might not uh, think it's as important. They really want to do it. Yeah. But yes, I guess ultimately they don't think it's worth. Holds the same value potentially is like. Yeah. I, I think, you know, our attention and our focus and where we put our resources shows us what the things that we value probably. Mm. But I do know a lot of people that talk about wanting to do passion projects, but find it really hard. I think the th we may have spoken about this last time, but I think the conversation that I don't hear often is it's all well and good to want to do passion projects. And I, I, I understand that I do yeah. that, but for me, there's sort of a trifecta of things we give our attention to. The work that makes us money, the work that builds our career, passion projects or music videos or whatever, and our families, the things that anchor us, that, that sort of tether us to reality. Not a lot of people talk about the third. Like a lot of people, I find, um, a lot of people do sort of talk about passion projects, but not a lot of people sort of real talk, real talk about the cost. Right. The cost of even mm -hmm. doing your passion project. Yeah. Um, not to mention the cost of, um, you know, 
making the feature, shooting the commercial, shooting the music video. But, um, and you know what, maybe that's fine um, because it is private. Um, but yeah, it is something that actually, there's a lot of stake in what we do, um, not creatively, mm. personally. personally. I think I'm looking for maybe some sort of like advice in a way that maybe you could share to people that are interested in doing passion projects. Cause like you said, there's a few different, you know, aspects. One's the career, one's passion projects, one's family. And mm -hmm. those two correlate a lot. I mean, all three of them do, mm -hmm. but do you have advice for people that are in, that want to actually make their own passion project? And what are some things to consider when doing so? Um, I'm trying to think really like, what is it that, what is it that drives me to do passion projects? Sometimes it's, it's twofold. I guess the one part of it is, um, strategic, mm -hmm. which isn't really not the important part, but I get that. And I think probably that's where a lot of people will sort of come to the table wanting to like do something in the passion work because they can't do it in the commercial work because, but they want to do it in the commercial work. And as we know, this business, you know, if you, if, if they can't see it on the reel, they're not going to give you the job. So, um, often that's a motivation for me. Oftentimes it's just, there's something that I want to express or say that I don't get to say in commercials because commercials have to sort of serve a selling end sure. um, or a sales end right. or a marketing end. And sometimes I just want to tell, yeah, tell a story of something that I believe in um, or express an emotion that I can't express, anger. Like when I did my first music video, I was actually on a commercial that I didn't love doing and I was super frustrated and I wrote this story for this, for this music video called Mr. Martyr sort of out of my anger because um, I sort of felt boxed in by doing car commercials and not the, not the sort of the, the, the stuff that I really wanted to do, which was a little bit more humanist and raw. Mm. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm just frustrated. I'm going to write this. And so that was sort of a double whammy. It's like, actually it was coming out of a truthful sort of emotional place. And it was just, again, maybe a part of my curiosity that I wanted to exercise. And then it also ended up also being something quite strategic um, in that it did open up a part of my career. Um, all of a sudden I was, wasn't was seeing so many car things, but I was seeing more like sports uh, stuff and like real stories. Yeah. Um, and I think just navigating your own sort of reasons for why you wanna do it and what, what does it mean to you mm -hmm. is really important because you have to do an assessment of what are you willing to put in to make that happen. Right. What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you make? willing to sacrifice? Yeah. Both of the time that you're not gonna be doing a commercial, so. And then, and then, which is sort of you're thinking, always thinking, well, if I don't, if I'm not doing the commercial, I don't have something new for my reel. Mm -hmm. And also I don't have money, money coming, coming in. in. I'm actually putting money, money into the project. Um, and so I think people just sort of have to weigh up right. like th that reality. Um, and then I think I am, I won't probably be following my own advice here, or I don't think I follow my own advice with this next statement is try and make it for as simple and as um, inexpensive as you can. 
top line. <laughs> I don't follow my own advice there. <laughs> um, but, and this is the hard thing, also don't compromise too much. Mm. You have to compromise all the time um, on when you're in commercials and music videos. And sometimes it becomes, you can be very excited sometimes going into a commercial or music video with an idea that you had, but then that idea gets compromised through, oh, they've got these notes, the agency right. and the client has these notes. It becomes notes, a watered down so version. Yeah, yeah, watered down for logistical, exactly. creative, yeah. and monetary mm -hmm. purposes. It gets watered down. And so when you're doing a passion project, try not to water the thing down. Uh, and sometimes that may mean, what it often means for me is putting more money in to make it what it to make it what it can be mm. um, or what I want it to be. Because this is often what I find with with um with passion projects is as soon as you've spent that first bit of money, now the money is spent. You're not getting that money back. Right. And so if the film's gonna suck and you've spent money, no good. That's no good. But if you can maybe spend a little bit more money, because sometimes this just happens within passion projects, if you can spend a little bit more money, but it'll be great, that may be worth it. Mm. Um, because you just you just don't want it to suck or you, you can't stand behind it because it's not creatively what you want it to be. And this happens often, it hasn't happened with me, thank God, but it does happen often. I hear countless stories of this director isn't putting that piece of work out or this piece of work out, like a passion project, because it's just not everything it could be. And sometimes, you know what, it just, and I, I'm not disparaging other directors for doing that. I, I, I get what that's like, but I think sometimes you just have to go, oh, maybe it's just worth spending a little bit more money or asking another favor right. um, to try and finish it so that it can be, or to try and make it what it can be. And again, I, it is a luxury to be able to go, oh, this is how much it was initially gonna cost and it's just like, it's blown up. Um, and the luxury sometimes is your kid's, kid's college fund. <laughs> I think you told me a story last time where you called your wife, you're like, oh, I think we're gonna add more money or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I did that twice on that project. <laughs> and I did it probably three times on the short film that I shot in Ukraine. And you know, man, yeah, look, it's it's heartbreaking because, and just to use the short film as an example, mm -hmm. I, um, I submitted it to a film festival that I really wanted it to get into, it didn't. Boom, and it hit me hard. And I've never really done film festivals before, you know? So I didn't understand the name of the game, just the way that it's gonna go, which is just rejection, rejection, rejection. Yeah. I mean, if you're awesome and your film's amazing and you have CAA or UTA, all these companies attached and you've got big names on it, then great, then you know those people are gonna get into film festivals. I'd never done a film and put it into a film festivals, yeah. uh, into a film festival. So I just always saw, you know, Sundance, Berlin, Venice, and I would see my friends get into it. I was like, oh, like, it's doable. <laughs> it's, yeah, not not only is it doable, uh, like part of me was like, oh, this should be easy. Mm. Like how arrogant to think Did like that. Did you think that. maybe like, oh, I, I'm next maybe because of all your friends? Yeah, 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 totally, totally. You think, oh no, this should be easy. Like 
Because again, mm. you're exposed to it on social media. Right. So you're like, oh, this, this is gonna be easy. And then deny, <laughs> deny, 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 denied. And now you're going, oh, yeah. am I shit? Am I mm. that bad? You know, like, and I can laugh about it now. <laughs> I couldn't laugh about yeah. it when it was happening. I mean, things in my household, because of me and my ego, was not great. It was a lot of self-pity. Mm. And self-pity does no one good. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do me any good when I'm doing it. It doesn't do your family any good. Um, and I, I, just, I, just, I just wasn't, I just, I think maybe I was just too cocky thinking like, oh, I could, I could do this. It could be, you know, it could be fine. It could be, it could be accepted. Or it, not it could, I think it might. Mm. But if you think about the odds, it's one, I think they take one in 15 films or something like that. Mm. And Cannes takes one in 10, you know? So what was I thinking, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. The film now got into a fest, like into a, apparently, like I sort of gave up hope on the film um and when you submit the film you submit on like film freeway yeah for sure or yeah. film freeway i think it's used mostly for like uk and us ones mm. but then short film depot is another one that gets used mostly for like french ones and maybe some european ones and i had submitted a bunch on film freeway and those also cost money too so yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's, yeah 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 <laughs> oh yes the money factor of it is something um but I submitted one on Short Film Depot to mm. this one f festival in France and I forgot about it and it just got denied, denied, denied. I got into a couple of like interesting ones, but not like the Sundances sure. and the, and I took a knock, you know, like a, an ego knock. And now I just recently got into this one that I'd forgotten about mm. and it's having its life. And weirdly enough, I'm like, oh, you know what? Like maybe that was the journey that I needed to go on to learn uh, that I'm not in control. Again, so much of our, I think so much of our like, human and spiritual journeys are just, you're not in control. You can't dictate what the outcome of something is gonna be. Obviously you can, you know, have your wants f uh, and your desires for it, but you're just not in control and surrender. Right. Um, and surrender your ego, your little fragile ego, um, uh, and I feel like that was sort of the journey, you know, and who knows, like if this festival is going to be good for it, I think I'm just sort of learning to be, learning to be um, faithful to the process mm. and the result will have its own journey. I cannot control that, um, you know, Trust the process, not the product. Right. The product is out of my control. How people view it, I've, I view my film now with like I had a lot to learn, mm. but I'm also grateful I did it. I'm grateful I told that story. Technically, there's a lot that I learned from it that's going to help me with what I do next. Um, so I don't want to look at it with regret or despondency. Um, I'm sort of looking at it like no, it was a, it was a good step, a, a, a good road. Uh, process-wise that I needed to go through. I'm curious what you think of this quote. I think it kind of goes, I don't know if I'm quoting it, but it's by Rick Rubin, I think in his book, uh, the audience comes last. Mm -hmm. And um, I think he says some other things, but essentially he doesn't create anything for an for audience, audience at all. Mm -hmm. 
it seems like you kind of relate to that. Yeah, weirdly enough, I sort of like that idea. I, you know, you've heard this a million times too, and it's perhaps cliche and trite, but if I care about it, surely then someone else will mm. care about it. And I think, but I think that's, I do think that's experientially now, I can say that there is a truth to that. Um, it's weird, in my creative journey, I saw, I saw two people do it in another way. Like Will I Am would create, I, I did a commercial with him like years ago and he was just talking to us as he was talking about his process, like what he would do. He'd sort of create a track in Ableton or even on his iPad, mm -hmm. create the beat and he'd go test it out, take it to a club, mm. load it up and see how people would react and then go back into the studio and tweak and adjust his creation to how people re would react. And interesting, right. amazing, it works, obviously works for him. It's just, I don't work that way. I think even Kanye West, I don't know exactly how Kanye West actually works, sorry, but well, that was the experience with Will I Am. And it was so interesting, cause I was going, oh wow, I, I just don't work that way. It has to work for me first right. um, before it works for anyone else, you know? I think I have just two more questions. Um, the first, I, I know we've talked about it throughout this, um, but in a more confined way, um, what do you see success for you right now in your life in this moment of where you are versus how do you think you've perceived success years ago? I think that, I think the definition of success for a lot of people in our field looks like a Grammy for music video, best music video of the award or Oscar or like that's pinnacle, right? right? And down from that is gets into this festival, gets into that festival. And I, I get that. I, I understand that that is our definitions of success, makes sense. Um, but I also think that if I sort of live my life navigating those, um, they're almost like they're on the other side of product even. Mm -hmm. They're like way more out of our control than even the final product. Right. And so you're sort of grasping at things that like um, you have no control over. And if you're building all your emotion and your sense of value and your sense of identity on something that you have no control over, good luck. I just, yeah. that's pretty dangerous. Um, and I think I've sort of recognized that as another, you know, chew the meat through osmosis of what my parents have taught me. They've been really good at just teaching me like what's valuable um, and, I mean, I, I try and live that way, but it's hard. I mean, there's so, sort of always the human draw. There's always the ego draw to validate yourself through thinking about the Oscar and thinking about wow. whatever. Um, but I think honestly, if, if I can have a journey um, sort of like, um, sort of like the euros that I have mentioned, if I can have a journey doing what I love and have a life that hasn't fall, fell into pieces, 
um, you know, a journey that's like marked with curiosity, um, but also there's love and togetherness in my family. I think I'd be pretty, I'd be pretty happy. Um, and I will say it's, I, I think, I don't know. I, it's for a lot of people, it's not easy and it isn't easy. It's not, I don't think it's mm. easy. I mean, we have real conversations about, um, is it worth it? Sometimes we do have that conversation. Is what I do for a living, is the creative journey sort of worth it? Like the tax that I can put on my mental well-being, my wife's mental well-being, because she's also in the arts. Like sometimes do we, should we just like really simplify our lives? Like, like I mean, sometimes the, no, the, the monastic life is really appealing, mm. you know, and, um, there is a part of me that's sort of drawn to that. Um, I just don't know if that's maybe the right way to live, you know? Mm -hmm. I think um, to be salt and light, so to speak, is um, there's a reason why we're sort of in the world we find ourselves, right. you know? And I sometimes I feel like the tendency to remove myself just for my own ease and just for my own sort of mm -hmm. mental well-being um, but I also sort of understand that like there's a responsibility to be with people, um, yeah. and to like love on people, like in a St. Francis of Assisi way, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. Love that. Part of my, one of my favorite things I used to, I used to think that I hated people, but I think part of why I love filmmaking so much is the fact that I get to be around my friends. Right. It's honestly one of my favorite parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, you get to be around your friends. You get to create with yeah. your friends. I mean- It's like a dream, it really is. That's part of why I love passion projects so much. Mm. More so than commercial projects, because sometimes with commercial projects, so many people are like, you're hiring this people because the agency wants that person. And you're hiring this person because for whatever political reason. But when it's a passion project, first of all, you're mostly working with friends. And if you're not working with friends, you're working with people who really wanna be there. Mm -hmm. And now you're meeting new friends mm -hmm. who you're sharing. You're sharing, I mean, if it's your project or if it's someone else's project, you're sort of sharing a love for the thing and the love for each other. And that feeling like you're a kid again on a camping trip going to, I don't know, make something together or say, I mean, I live for that. Honestly, that's one of my favorite, favorite experience. I just, I just did that coming from the desert and we had a main shoot. We had like a crew of 10 to 12 people. And we were just like- It's like a perfect size. It was amazing. Yeah, it's great. Then we did like a little reshoot and it was me this time. And then this time I took my son with me, my oh, nine-year-old son. And he was just like holding the leaf blower. <laughs> I had camera. Uh, or a DP and the two actors mm -hmm. and a loader, that's it. So everyone sort of fit in one vehicle and we were just out in the middle of the desert. And I just wanted to give my son the experience of like, this is, this is what it takes. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully when he see, sort of sees the end result, it feels huge, but was made so small and hopefully it connects you know, and yeah, I just love that 
part of the process. You're right. I, I mean, I consider myself an introvert. I, th yeah. I think I'm an introvert. I don't actually love, like I said, I don't like networking and I don't like being social in, in that way, but I love shoots. I love connecting with someone one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. Like I've always been, you know, a friend of three people as opposed to a friend of 50 people. Um, and sometimes when a set is really intimate and I really get to know someone and we really get to connect, the best is the best. Did your son love it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was that his first time on like a shoot? It was his first time, like not just coming for like an hour visit, mm. um, but like spending the day, the spending day. the night, you know, oh, so helping. He, he got the full. The full, the full amazing. deal, the full deal. Wow. Not in scale. Sure. <laughs> but in. Could be intimidating. But in responsibility and, right. but also in fun. He got the full deal in terms of like how fun it could be, yeah. you know? And yeah, I just, I love, I love that. It's my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing. I get very, um, I get very emotional when I think of the people that come together to make something. Right. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a privilege, first of all, it, it really is a privilege. Um, and uh, yeah, I want to, I want to keep treating the projects, even if they become bigger in size or if they become a feature or a bigger doc or something, as much as I can, the projects that sort of come from me, I want to keep holding them in that sort of, when I say fragile, I just mean, I don't want to mess with that too mm. much because I want to maintain that, um, that intimacy amongst each other and right. intimacy around the work that you're doing, you know, um, that sometimes, sometimes is not there in commercial work because you just gotta go, 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 yeah. you know? I think that's it. Amazing. All right. Thank Dude. you, man. Pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed today's episode. I'll see you next time. Peace out. So thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Creative Gap Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, there are a ton of other episodes for you to listen to as well. Check us out on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you want to get your podcast, you can find it. And now that you're watching this, you could also watch the full video podcast on YouTube. Also, be sure to check us out on Instagram at Creative Gap for future updates, upcoming guests, and a lot of short clips. And if you want to support the podcast in a deeper way, feel free to join our Patreon community. And for those of you who already joined the Patreon community, thank you. And for those of you who are new to the show, welcome. Hopefully you enjoy it. And for those of you who have been here for a long time, thank you. So that's all we got for you today. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next time. Peace out.